Thanks, Steve. Good morning and welcome to EV. My name's Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here. Great to see you as we gather together around God's Word uh, today. A um, little bit of exciting news from last week. Last Sunday night, we had the Dan Bremner's concert at Uni Church. It was a really exciting time to get together, uh, to hear some great songs, about an hour worth of concert playing, which was good. Um, we opened up the Bible and we heard from Tear Fund about how people could uh, share in supporting sponsor children. Now, we had a kind of a goal that we hadn't said to many people that we'd love to see um, 28 people sign up to, to look after sponsor children in these two villages that we've got partnerships with in Sri Lanka. Well, the exciting news is we've got 27 people signing up, which means that we now have, amongst the people that come along to EV, 49 sponsored children uh, being uh, kind of supported to see them have uh, relief from poverty and access to the gospel in their local churches. And that's one of the great things with Compassion and Tear is they have the gospel, the news of Jesus, mixed in with social justice. And they're together helping these kids to grow up in their love and knowledge of God. So that means we as a church have got 49 kids at the moment uh, in these two villages, in these two projects in Sri Lanka that are hearing the gospel and growing and having food because of uh, your generosity and partnership, which is so exciting. I wanted to say, isn't that great? Isn't that exciting that us as a church are being able to help these people there? Now, if you want to make that 50, you can write that down on your Connect card and we can give you details if you're interested in finding out more information about that. But I just wanted to stop and thank God for the generosity he's shown us that enables us to be able to support these kids in Sri Lanka. Why don't we pray? Lord, it is such a privilege to be able to use the gifts and resources that you've given us to see people relieved from poverty in this age and relieved from the poverty of death and judgment and hell in the age to come because of the work of the gospel. We ask that as we as a church partner with Tear and these children in Sri Lanka, that you'd see them growing in their love and knowledge of you. You'd see them with food and water and being able to understand you more and more and that they might grow up to proclaim the news of Jesus amongst their friends and family so that more people will be standing perfect in Christ on that last day. Father, thanks for this privilege. It is such a joy to be used by you to see your gospel go out and your people that you have made loved. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you want to pull out your outlines, hopefully that outline will help you kind of know where we're going today as we look at this next section in the book of 2 Corinthians. One of the greatest stumbling blocks to the Christian faith is the perception that becoming a Christian or being a Christian means being limited. It means that I'm limited in in what I do and what I can do. I'm limited in enjoying what it seems the rest of the world enjoys without any negative side effects. There's some research done recently um, through the Wilforce Foundation across New Zealand that talks through the top five issues that block people who might be open to checking out the things of God from becoming a Christian. Uh, 36% of those surveyed said that teaching on homosexuality was a blocker, that, that, that we should be free to live the way we want rather than limited by what God's word says. Then 28% said the next biggest blocker was the idea of hell and condemnation kind of limiting, isn't it? That there is something after death, and there's, there's an idea here of that. Um, others talked about the teaching on the role of women in the church, saying that was a blocker to them experiencing or checking out more of Christianity. Now, I don't know where you've come from today. I don't know what you think about God, about Jesus. You might be there feeling limited in your Christian faith, wanting to know more of what God has to offer us, to experience God more. Or you might be coming along checking out the things of God, And you might be thinking, I'm not sure I want to sign up to these things that I need to live. 
And the Bible feels quite limiting. Well, as Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, remember there are people that are chasing after the teaching of these super apostles, these ones that have gone before them and, and said, look, there's a fuller, richer way of living life to the full than what Paul has said. There's more to be had. There's a sense where we always love more. That's why at McDonald's they ask, do you want fries with your order? Because we, oh, Okay, why not? That sounds good, right? More. How can more fat and carbs and sugar be bad for me? Like, it's great. And so we love the idea of more. And so the Corinthian church was running to gain fullness above and beyond what Paul had said. But as Paul writes this part of the letter, he starts to show them that the only limiting factor in our experience of the fullness of God is not him, nor Paul's message, but us. We are the only limiting factor of, the, of knowing the fullness of God. It comes from us. So today, as we look at this section, we'll see Paul perform kind of corrective surgery on our hearts and our affections and refocus us on the truth that reframes the way we think about fullness and what God's law and way is about. So come with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Let's dive in and see what Paul has to say to us. Verse 11, Paul says, We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been open wide. You are not limited by us, but you are limited by your own affections. You can see he's writing into this context of the Corinthian church, wanting to follow these super apostles, this, this joy and fullness found outside of what Paul had taught. And I think we experience the same tension in church today, even as Christians. Have you ever felt that Paul's message of Christianity was limiting? That kind of Jesus, he, he talked about love and loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek. And Paul comes along and says, you've got to do this. You've got to live that way. Take up your cross. Well, Jesus said that. But anyway, you know, people play off Paul, uh, Jesus against Paul. And they say that Paul's teaching is more limiting he talks about that our joy is not experiencing the fullness of all of God's promises now, but when Jesus returns, that's limiting. I want to experience it now. Uh, Paul talks about sex being for marriage between a husband and a wife. That's limiting. What if I like a guy as a guy? Shouldn't I live out that way? Or... And so Paul talks about these limiting aspects, and the Corinthian church hates these limits. They'd heard Paul talk about it. They took some of it on board, but then they felt the limiting nature of it. Let me ask you this morning, as we come to this part of God's word, where do you find the limiting nature of Paul's message? Where are you tempted to say, ah, I don't know if I love what he says here or there. What issues that he brings up great your natural way of thinking, the natural way that you'd like to live, where you naturally think fullness and satisfaction are found. Let me ask it another way. How has the message of Paul that he's explained throughout this letter and throughout the rest of the Bible left you feeling dry and bland and apathetic? As we think through those areas, Paul is saying, if you are feeling limited by my message, <laughs> it's not me, it's you. You know that great saying? When you're breaking up with someone, you know, it's not you, it's me. Well, this time it's the other way around. Paul says, it's not me. The problem is not with what, what I've said. The problem is with your affections, with you. And you're like, well, what is that? 
The problem is that the Corinthian church's affections were limited because they were focusing them on the wrong things. There's nothing wrong with Paul's message. The issue is internal to them, not external. If you, if you want more, if you want to experience the fullness of God, if you want to be on fire, if you want to experience what it is like to know the true and living God, Paul says it comes from listening to my message, not finding another one. And so you should be open to what he has to say. And that's what he pleads to this Corinthian church in verse 13. Have a look. I speak as to my children. As a proper response, you should also be open to us. You want the fullness of God. You want to experience the fullness of what God has to offer. Listen to Paul. If you're here today checking out the things of God, what Paul is saying is that life to the full is found in listening to the message he proclaims about Jesus. There is something here about this man, Jesus, that if you understand it and live his way, although it seems limiting at first, actually gives you freedom and life to the full. Perhaps I want to challenge us this morning. Are you open to the message of Paul? Right now, are you open to God working by his spirit through his word to shape you in what fullness looks like? Paul says, if you want the fullness of God, stop trying to find fullness in the wrong places. It's point two on your outline. Finding fullness in the wrong places. Because that's exactly what the Corinthians were trying to do. They were looking for fullness by being like the world around them. We want God and we want all the other cool stuff as well. We want all the trappings and trimmings and everything that everyone offers. We'll have a smorgasbord of things. We'll, we'll take a little bit of that kind of philosophy and a little bit of this philosophy and a little bit of Jesus and mix it all in. And that's life to the full. They were looking for fullness by being like the world around them. And how often I do that, don't you? You see what others have and you're like, oh, that'd be good. That's nice. You know, if, if, it wasn't for, if it wasn't for me being a Christian, would I be in this job? No, I hope not. <laughs> right? But I'm like, well, what would I be doing? I, I, I kind of think about it. I'd, I have a nice car or nice cars and be like, wow, look at them. That'd be great. And I'd, I'd seek fulfillment in, in that area. I'd be trying to have as much pleasure as possible. Uh, I'd be seeking pleasure in every area because it feels naturally to me what we ought to be doing. Paul tells the Corinthians, don't be pulled aside by the ways of the world, thinking there is more fullness there. And he starts somewhere a little close to home. Verse 14, do not be mismatched with unbelievers. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. Our temptation is to live like the world around us, to seek fullness from what the world around us says will bring us fulfillment. But Paul wants to make clear right here to you and to me the incompatibility of gospel living with so much of what the world around us lives for. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. Now, some translations say, do not be unevenly yoked. And that's the idea of that word mismatched. Um, Now, a yoke was kind of a wooden beam that tied two animals together to do work in a field. So you had two oxen, you'd put them next to each other, you'd whack a beam across it and kind of tie them together so they could do their their digging work together as like a team, kind of like um, the All Blacks in in a scrum, unlike the Wallabies. They seem to not be able to link arms and do it together and keep collapsing the scum, scrum. Um, But together, they they would be yoked together and so charged together and it would be great. Paul's saying, 
don't link yourself in with people who live very differently. Don't be unevenly yoked, mismatched. Kind of think about it this way. Imagine trying to plow a field with a rhinoceros and a giraffe. You get the drift? Like the beam's going to be a bit crooked. You know, trying, oh, how are we going? The, 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 the giraffe has got its long legs. It's kind of walking along. I've never seen a giraffe have power. They kind of, except when they kick sideways or something. But kind of walking along, trying to plow. The rhino is over here just going like, I'm going I'm to smash that guy at the end, you know? The rhinos, they're always, always looking at something and then running toward it. So the rhino wants to go this way. And the giraffe's like, oh, look, there's a bird up there. Oh, I can see that tree. And wants to eat over here. And can you imagine a rhino and a giraffe being yoked together? They have totally different objectives in the way that they're built differently. So Paul says, stop linking together with people who are living for something different, who live very differently, who have different morals and motives in all that they are doing. Because let me assure you, if you're a giraffe and you're like, hey, this is great. And there's a rhino on the floor. You ain't staying up in the trees very long. That rhino is like a tank. It's just going to run and you're going to like along the ground and kind of be dragged off to the back. Do not be unequally, do not be mismatched, he says. This world is going in a very different direction to God. Those living for the world with its motives and morals are going to be going in a very different direction from God. So don't strap yourself in with others that are going a different direction, Paul says. Don't be dragged along. It won't work. Now, what does that look like? kind of get the idea does that mean that we shouldn't be around anyone in the world what does that mean we can talk to people who have different how does this work and he doesn't actually tell us exactly how that plays out um, but he does give us kind of five examples of how we need to be different he unpacks five ways which the world is different or incompatible with the fullness of god in this next section have a look with me at verse 14 for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with dark? What agreement does Christ have with Bilal or Satan? Well, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what argument, sorry, what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? Five different areas that he's contrasting the two together. What partnership is there with righteousness and unrighteousness? None. They're the opposites of one another. There is no partnership. You can't be right, living rightly, and at the same time, breaking the law. It just can't happen. I mean, it's like the corrupt judge. No, you get to get out. That's not right. You can't live kind of in a way that's against God and at the same time be living in a way that is for God. The two don't go together. What are you doing? Or, or the second one, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Now, darkness is the absence of light. Well, what, do you, what is it when it's dark? Well, it's, there's no light. <laughs> And so you can't have light and dark together. They just don't exist. Wherever the light is, there is no darkness. Wherever the darkness is, that's because there is no light. You cannot have the two together. What agreement does Christ have with Belial or Satan? I'll tell you, none. Jesus and Satan don't hang out at the bar on Fridays and be like, oh, what are we going to do this weekend? Let's work out a plan together and see what we could be doing and kind of think and plot and plan together about how they can take over the world. Now, Satan tried that on a mountain to Jesus. All this could be yours. Jesus said, get away from me. Man will not live but anything but the bread of God alone, the word of God alone. There is no agreement between Jesus and Satan. There is none. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And here's where it gets to the sharp end of the stick, what he's saying to us. 
And if you're here today and you don't yet trust in Jesus, please hear this. It's not saying that the unbeliever is somehow subpar or substandard. Or that the Christian is somehow better than the non-Christian. No way. I mean, as I look at the example of the rhino and the rhinoceros, like there's some cool, sorry, the, the rhino and the giraffe, there's some cool things about giraffes, right? They've got really long necks. They can see a long way. Um, what it's saying here is that we're going in different directions. The Bible holds out that Christians are just people that have recognized that we've rebelled against God. And, and that, that God is, in fact, the one who's helped us to recognize that through messages like this. We've heard the word of God and gone, am I going to live for him? What it's saying is that there's nothing necessarily innately better between the Christian and the non-Christian. It's just that they're going very different directions. Very different directions. Their whole system of thought, while it might look similar, I'm a human, they're a human, we're living for different things. One thinks this world ends at death. The other thinks that this life is but a blip on the radar of eternity. So they're going to live with different ideas and morals and ways of thinking. And so Paul is saying... What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And the, the, the kind of answer that we're supposed to go totally is nothing. But sometimes I don't look very different from the world around me. Do you? Sometimes we look just like the world around us. In fact, we've become so like it that sometimes it's hard to distinguish any differences between someone who does believe in Jesus and someone who doesn't. And isn't that a problem? Isn't that an issue? What agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? This is the last picture. In other words, can you ever imagine when, when God set up the, the temple, the sanctuary, and his holy of holies was in the center, and that was the place where only the high priest was to go once a year, and he had to offer sacrifices for sins before he walked in. Can you imagine rolling in kind of the statue of Dagon in there, putting an idol to another god? In fact, the other nations tried that in 1 and 2 Samuel, and they, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the temple of Dagon. And the next morning they woke up and Dagon's idol had fallen flat on his face. You, you cannot have a false god with a true god. Nothing, no one or nothing stands up to him. The picture Paul is kind of painting for us is, if you want the fullness of God, if you want to live with the non-limited way, the way that will give you full knowledge of the true and living God, life to the full then don't be caught up in the ways of the world because that is not how you will find fullness and satisfaction. The question is, where are you mixing light with dark in your life? Where are you doing a little bit of wrong with a little bit of right? <laughs> but let God's word by his spirit now wash over you, provoke you, prompt you. Where are you living in some parts of your life in a way, life, in a way that is right but in other parts, you know there are ways that are wrong. Um, where do you bring in a little bit of Christianity with a little bit of other religions? You know, it's just a bit of fun, checking out the horoscopes in the paper each week. I'm just, I'm just kind of seeing what they say and it's a bit of fun to have. No, it's not. It is the occult. Why do we look at clairvoyance? Where, where are we tempted to rely on other idols like money? And think, I'm secure because my bank balance has got a few zeros on the end of a number, as opposed to the other way around, <laughs> a number on the end of a few zeros. Where do I find my security and status? So security and comfort comes from my status. What others think of me. And I think, you know, life is worth living because people think highly of me, because of my reputation. Or perhaps what other idols have come into your world? How strong is sport for you? 
Do you live for the blues? And you laugh. But you might. It's a sad existence on many, many levels as a blues supporter. What about your image? What image are you trying to um, kind of provoke or show to the world around you? What image are you putting on that people will think about you? And is that what you live for? What others think? Maybe it's romance. Maybe for you it's living for the next novel that takes you away in your thinking with this lovely couple who always do exactly what they ought to be doing. And maybe you're waiting waiting for the man or woman that will complete you. Either way. Maybe you're living the life that says, sex and relationships will fulfill me. And I I do, I trust Jesus, but I'm kind of living for this area without putting Jesus first, without being married. Or maybe in your marriage, seeking that the greatest good is just your marriage and you forget about the God who created marriage. For the introverts amongst us, is me time your idol? I just, I'm an introvert. So I need to have time alone, and that's, I just need to have it. I must have it. Or the extrovert, I must be around people. I've got to I've just get, let me out. I've got, to, I've got to talk to people. And we kind of idolize those things and say, well, look, this is just so important. I need it. What about travel? Experience? Pleasing others, whether that's friends or family members? Kids. You know, kids can be... a a great, great blessing from God, and they are. They can also be an idol, where we idolize their opportunities, where we think that life lived to its fullness is giving my child every possible opportunity that I never got. And rather than showing them life lived to its fullness is living in relationship with who you are in God's sight. And we can idolize them. There are so many ways we try and pull Christ with different idols. And what Paul is saying is, If you trust in Jesus, you are fundamentally different. You are different. You have different goals, different motivations, different authorities than the world around us has. So, as you think about the way you relate to the world around us, don't be mismatched. Don't yoke in. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, well, the Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian? Well, yes, it does mean that, but not this particular passage. I think it's saying that there. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if a, um, if a believer is to marry, uh, it must be in the Lord. Uh, if a widow is looking for a husband or a wife, they must be in the Lord. So he said that, and it makes sense of this passage, you don't, you don't want to be married to someone who thinks fundamentally different about you. Have a chat to those in this room that are in that very situation. How hard that is with different goals, different motives, different drives. And what does that mean for business? I don't think it means we shouldn't necessarily be in business with non-Christians, but I think we need to think about it. I think we need to go, how much is what they're trying to achieve different from what God says I should achieve? I think we need to think carefully, not about, okay, there's these, there's these hard and clear line, rules in the sand that we can't cross, but go, how, are, how is the world around me drawing me away from who I am in Christ? Now, it's very clear that Paul doesn't want us to kind of just totally detached from the world around us. You know, let's go start a, a commune and call it Gloria Vale or something. You know, he does not want that. At 1 Corinthians 5, he says very clearly, it's on the screen. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. 
Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. And his picture here is, no, we live in the world, but we are not of the world. We live in it. We live amongst people, pointing them to the God who is in control and who loved us, but we don't kind of strap in and lock in with people who are going a different direction than us. We need to be careful with this. Paul is saying, look where you are going. Recognize what it is to live for the true and living God. Don't be drawn aside. Don't think that there is, there are, there's more fullness to be had outside of God. That if I have Jesus and a bit of this other stuff the world is offering, then I'll, I'll be there. Now, when you hear that, if I'm honest and I try to be, there's a sense where you can feel exactly the same way as we started. That all feels very limiting. Like, I, I want to live life to its full. I feel like God is limiting me. Don't be like this. Don't live that way. How is that life better? Well, Paul tells us the key to understanding how to live God's way to its fullness is not found in just focusing on what we put off, but focusing on what we have. Focusing on the fullness, the fullest fullness. Lots of fools this week. Point number three, the fullest fullness. See, he shows the Corinthians that the fullest fullness doesn't come from focusing on what the world around us does, but it comes from focusing on one astounding truth. One astounding truth. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16. For we are the sanctuary of the living God. For we are the sanctuary of the living God. And by that we, he's talking to the Corinthian church that is there. And so by nature, for us who trust in Jesus, he's saying about you and me right now, that the reason that we are to live differently, the reason why we are not to get so caught up with the world around us, is we have the fullness of God in us. You have the fullness of God in you. You are the sanctuary, the dwelling place of the living God. Paul had already said that to Corinthians back in 1 Corinthians 3. It's on the screen. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God lives in us. Like, I forget that all the time. I, I look at a kind of a great looking car or a kind of an awesome house or a lifestyle that looks relaxing and, and great and holidays and Fiji and, you know, and I think that would be great. Like, that would be the life. Paul says, wake up to yourself. The true and living God, if you trust in Jesus, lives in you. The one who spoke and creation came into being. The one who said, let there be light, and there was. The one who flung the stars into space and upholds the universe and is in control of all things, lives and dwells in us and with us. How stupid I am to seek fulfillment outside of that. What else do I need? So often think of celebrities and be like, oh, it'd be great to get to know that person. I find myself wanting to associate with celebrities. And kind of, you know, um, you know someone special comes along, you're like, oh, I met so-and-so, or I saw so-and-so. And you're like, whoa, that's great. As if by some means their greatness rubbed off on me by me just seeing them. And everyone's like, oh, you're great too because you saw them. God lives in you. He's present by his word amongst us as a church. Directing us, shaping us, molding us. By his spirit, he is in us. That's amazing. (laughs) And we need to be reminded of it. And so what Paul does is he goes back to the Old Testament. Back to kind of where the Corinthian church, that those that kind of were Jewish, back to their Jewish roots. And takes them back to different Old Testament quotes and brings them all together to show how great this is. Trusting his message. 
finding fullness in what he has said in the true and living God. So verse 16, he says this, And God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. He's saying God will make his dwelling with his people. Now that was promised way back in Leviticus 26. I'll show you a few of these verses. Leviticus 26, 12. And I will walk among you on that day and I will be your God and you shall be my people. God's own people. Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, I'll tell them the way I made the world to be lived. I'll give them my spirit, we'll see in a second, and he will dwell amongst them and in them to help them live my way according to the way I have set the world up, the best way, the fullest way. God will be with them. Ezekiel 37. I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. A covenant just means a promise. And peace is peace between us and God. Not like world peace. Everyone's like, oh. No, no. The hostility between the God who we need to be judged by and us is now sorted. I will make a covenant of peace with them. Shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary, my dwelling in their midst forever. Life forever with the true and living God. Can you imagine that? Um, Sarah and I and the staff team were just away at a conference over this last week. And Sarah's parents uh, came across from Sydney to stay and look after our kids, which was great. Um, and while we were away at the conference, we kind of did a little FaceTime call with our kids and was like, oh, hey, how are you guys doing? They're like, oh, it's good to see you. You know, they were like, oh, Pop gave us beer and pizza one night. We just got to eat the pizza, not the beer. <laughs> good. <laughs> anyway, it was, it was a good conversation. It was good to catch up. But when we got home last night and, and I got to the door, Lara came running down the stairs and goes, Daddy, and jumps into my arms and hugs me and says, it's so good to hug you. The dwelling of God is in us. No longer a promise. God is in us by his spirit. That is an amazing truth. We don't, we're not told about something that will happen, but he has made himself known. You can know and you know the true and living God. What else do you want? If you trust in Jesus, you have the spirit of God in you now here. Now as a deposit, guaranteeing the inheritance that will come that will be even better. But God is in us and with us. Do you see how amazing it is to recognize the fullness we have in Christ? Do you see how fundamentally different that is to every other person on the face of the planet who does not have God with them, who has not heard the word of God and obeyed? God dwells in us. The second thing Paul shows us in this section is in verse 18, God calls us his children. Not only is he with us, he calls us his children. Verse 18, I will be a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We get to call him dad. Not only do we know him, we're part of the royal family. This is amazing. He's pulling together quotes from 2 Samuel 7. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And Isaiah 46, do not fear for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather them from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone called by my name and created for my glory. I have formed him. Indeed, I have made him. 
Our God is a jealous God and he longs and wants to gather his people in to call us his sons and daughters so we can call him our dad. So on the day Jesus comes back, although we have the spirit now, we can run to our heavenly father and jump into his arms and say, it is so great to see you. Not in a kind of uh, a sense that isn't real, but really and truly in the flesh. God the son, God the father, God the spirit for eternity. He is gathering us together. We get to call him dad now. One of my favorite TV shows is uh, The West Wing. I don't know if you've is anyone, who's, who's seen The West Wing? Show of hands about my, how many people I need to convert. All right, okay. So for the rest of you, I think the best television ever made. So there you go, big, big call. Uh, it's about leadership and how you lead people uh, when all the decisions are bad and you can't really work it out. But there's this fantastic scene. It's about uh, the president of America, fictitious president, Jed Bartlett. Uh, and, uh, and how he's leading through the presidencies and the ups and downs, seven seasons. But in season one, there's this moment where uh, Jed is there and his daughter, um, so the, the daughter of the, of the president, she goes out with the staff team of the, of the White House, the kind of the upper, the upper people. She's out at a, at a bar with them uh, and she's kind of 19 years old and they're at this bar, she's about to go to college and, and the president's being a bit pre- protective of his daughter. And so he gives her this panic button. That basically, she hits the button and the, and the federal security agents, the FBI, just come flooding in and just solve whatever issue there is. Anyway, so she's at the table with this White House staff and um, a drink hasn't come for one of the staff. She goes, I'll go and get it. And so she leaves her panic button on the table and kind of be like, oh, what's going to happen? And she kind of goes up and to the bar. And there's these guys there and she's waiting for the drink to come. There's guys at the bar that start kind of flirting with her. Oh, what's your name? They don't recognize who she is. And they're like, oh, let us guess. And they're kind of throwing, they start kind of, chatting and she's like oh i want to go now and they're like oh no 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 we, we want to ask you some more questions and it's getting a bit kind of and so one of the guys from the the staff kind of just notices and so he just gets up and walks across he's like hey guys um zoe it's time to go and they're like oh your name's zoe thanks for your name and they wouldn't let it go and he's like no we need to head now and they're like no nope, you're gonna have to go through us he's like look guys look you, you don't want to muck around you, you don't know who you're dealing with here uh, and he's like, just, just come. And he's like, look, I'll buy you all a round of drinks. And they're like, no way. We're not going to be bored out of this. You got to go through us. And then one of the other staff sees, and they kind of come over and, and taps the other one who picks up the panic button. And they walk over and they go, you guys got to let, you gotta, you gotta, she's coming with us. And they're like, oh, a fight's about to happen. And then um, one of them hits the panic button, and he's like, you guys are having the worst day ever. He's like, what is about to happen, you will remember for the rest of your lives. You have picked a fight with the wrong people. He's like, yeah, who's going to stop us? And at that moment, the FBI burst in and they go, FBI! And they grab these guys, shove their faces down, like wrap them up. They grab Zoe, they walk out. Why? Because she's a child of the President of the United States of America. Her identity is bound up in who her dad is. She is incredibly special to him and so looked after by him. Friends, if you are a child of God... God is saying, don't muck around with the world around you. Remember who you are. Remember what I have shown you. You don't need to live like that. You, I, I care for you. This is the way to live. The laws and rules that I've set up are the kind of panic buttons for you to not to get pulled into the world around you. Trust me. Live this way. This is the best way to live. And so right in the middle of those quotes from the Old Testament in verse 17, Paul quotes Isaiah 52 and he says this, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. When you've seen how amazing it is to be called a child of the true and living God, when you recognize that we are different and that God's family lives differently for him and not for the things of this world, 
then we recognize that we need to live differently. And so come out from the ways of this world. Live fully for God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, living fully. Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and the spirit, completing our sanctification in the fear of the Lord. What he's saying is, given that you are a child of God, Corinthian church, given that you are a child of God, Auckland EV, those who trust in Jesus, what on earth are you doing mucking around with the things of this world? What are you doing? You have God, the Spirit, living in you. Your future is for eternity, and you're seeking fullness for the things that are here and now that last but a blink of an eyelid. What are you doing? You're a child of God. You have fullness in Him. Cleanse yourself of these things, says Paul. Cleanse yourself. Stop longing and living like the world around you. It is not who you are. The question for us is, what lies of the world do we believe? What of our affections are too easily satisfied, are misplaced, distracted? Cleanse yourself. Now, he's not saying, make yourself right before God. Deal with your sin. No, only Jesus has done that. Jesus has done that on the cross when he died in our place. He's taken the wrath of God and made us in right relationship with him because we have peace with God now. He's not talking about that. He's saying, since you are a child of God, live that way. Cleanse yourself. Now, it's, it's a really, really important point. And I want us to hear this very clearly. Living God's way is not automatic. It's not automatic. There's a command here. Corinthian church, cleanse yourselves. Work hard at being different from the world around you. Work hard at living God's way, understanding what he has said is right. Keep putting off those old ways you used to be involved with. And every time you feel them creep in, shut them down. No, stop. I'm a child of a living God. Jesus died in my place. I have an eternity to look forward to with him. I'm going to trust him and recognize that I'm the crown prince of the God of the universe. The writer of Hebrews says it exactly the same thing for exactly the same reasons in Hebrews 12. Have a listen. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross, despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. I so easily grow weary. I so easily get entangled with the thoughts and fullness of the world around me. Don't look to Jesus. And what's interesting is the very reason that the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 4 is the same reason Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 6. Look, verse 4 of Hebrews 12. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten, ready, that the exhortation that addresses you as sons. We've forgotten that we're sons of the true and living God. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you're reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering, verse 7, as discipline, God is dealing with you as sons. 
Becoming a child of God, being adopted into his family is the magnum opus of the reality of what it is to be a Christian. That we can call God our Father and so live his way with family likeness. Let me ask you today, where do you need to cleanse yourself from the ways of Satan? What, what do you need to stop doing? Paul talks about this process of cleansing ourselves as our sanctification. Now, sanctification is just a big Christian jargon word that I hate using. I just use it and who says sanctification? And I'll never hear anyone outside the church ever say sanctification. What it means is, it means being made holy, being made different, being made like our saviour, cleansing ourselves of the ways of this world, the ways of Satan is being made more and more and more like Jesus, not like the world around us. As we think through that, don't as a church go, oh great, I learned or I know a great word called sanctification and use that lots. No, just do what it means. Cleanse ourselves from being like the world around us and focus on who we are in Christ. This morning, if you are stuck in sin, if you've been drawn in by some unrighteousness, some darkness, some ploy of Satan, can I encourage you, tell someone. Actually go and talk to someone this morning about it, a connect group leader or someone that you came with. There's no need to be embarrassed in front of one another. We're all sinners. You're not going to be like, whoa, like you sinned? Man, you're the worst. I never do that. We'll be like, yes, brother, me in different areas or sister, me in different areas. Go and speak. One of Satan's biggest victories is to say, you can't tell anyone. You can't let that secret out. You know, I know about it. You can't tell anyone what you've done because then they'll shun you. You won't be able to go to church. You you won't be able to think that way. It's just lies. (laughs) We're sinners saved by what Jesus has done. So talk to someone. Confess it to someone and together pray to God. Confess to him and stop sinning. I want to declare a monitorium this week. It should be like this every week, but I'm going to say it's special this week where um, there is no judgment. So monitorium on judgment, no judgment. You can go and speak to people and talk about how you've sinned and where that is. And people won't go, oh, that's horrible. You're the worst person in the world. Um, so no, you're not allowed to say that when someone comes up to you, right? You've got to say, I'm a sinner too, and I would love to walk with you. How can I pray for you? How can I help you to focus on the reality that we are children of God? How can you help me as I share with you to do that? Be honest. That morning tea today, I would love to see groups of people praying together talking about what it is to be called a child of God and thinking together about how we make sure that we keep serving God in God's way and not being sucked in by the world around us and confessing our sin and cleansing ourselves from unrighteousness. It's a time to have real and frank conversations with one another lovingly. Hey, I'm just worried about how much time you're spending with that guy or that girl. It happens to the best of us. A mate of mine, Christian pastor, just feeling depressed, feeling tired in Christian ministry, a church the same age as ours. And what happens? He went and slept with one of the apprentices in his church. I'm like, dude, why? How? How are you going to keep serving Jesus? It happens to all of us. No judgment, but to go, how will you keep serving and growing? Which is what he's done. He's repented. He's out of ministry. He's now putting his family back together. Friends, it's time to throw off our two-faced existence and live the one life, the life that says we are children of God, that we are longing for and looking forward to that day that Jesus comes back and we will hug the creator of the universe and say, Dad, so great to see you. I've missed you. 
I'm so glad you sent your spirit to be amongst us, but now I see you in your fullness. And we're going to let that reality of the future shape the way we live now as people in God's likeness. Friends, today, please hear Paul's word that he is worth listening to. There is no fullness found outside of the message of the gospel that Paul proclaims, not to the Corinthian church and not to us. There's no division between what Jesus says and what Paul says. Fullness is found in recognizing that those who trust in Jesus are sons and daughters of the true and living God. And therefore, we put off the ways of the world and run to the God who has saved us. Why don't we pray together that that would be our lives, that we could be living to put off the things of this world and loving and living for that reality of who we are. Let's pray. Father God, we are so, so thankful today that you call us your children, that through Jesus we can have our sins forgiven and therefore live with the fullness of knowing you in part now by your spirit and in fullness then when Jesus returns. Lord, fix our eyes, captivate us on that day that Jesus comes back and we'll see you face to face. And enable us, Lord, by your spirit to cleanse ourselves from rejection against you. May you provoke our consciences this day. Show us where we are mixing light with dark, unrighteousness with righteousness, Christ and Satan. Help us to flee from that. Give us wisdom as we work out how to work in the world around us, to be in it but not of it. And we ask that Jesus might be front and center for every person in this room. That today, if we have recognized that this is the true and living God, you bring us to know you and love you and serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.